Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that is deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the church lobby every Sunday. And of course, uh, we love answering your questions. Every month we do a weekly or a monthly Q&A episode, and we would love for you to send in your questions. You can send those into info at grove.church. You can also message the church page on Facebook. Well, with me today is actually our uh, our brand new co-host. So Pastor Aaron, say hello to the... Uh, How's it going, podcast listeners? The listeners of the podcast. Yeah, it's good to have you, man. So, no, I'm excited. I'm excited about moving forward. Uh, I think this is going to be a really awesome deal, and we're just going to, I don't know, we're just going to break you right into it. So, it's going to be awesome. Have some fun today. All right. So, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and jump into this week's Bible talk. So, last week we opened up the book of 1 Samuel, talked about a bunch of the themes. Uh, This week, what I really wanted to do was Talk about a passage in Samuel that really hints at the character of who David is. And so if you remember last week, we talked about how you could you could divide the book of uh, 1 Samuel into three sections, and all three of those sections are about transitioning power, right? So the first section of Samuel, or 1 Samuel, is the transition of power from Eli to Samuel. The second one would be a transition of power from Samuel to King Saul. And the third would be the transition of power from King Saul to King David. And 1 Samuel kind of ends with the uh, the beginning of the reign of David. Uh, David starts off, I mean, we all know the story of David and Goliath. It's kind of one of the, one of the famous ones. Uh, he starts off in the king's good graces, uh, and then things things go downhill really fast. And so uh, at this point where we pick up reading, and we're going to read a little bit today, uh, David is on the run and Saul is looking to kill him. Uh, David has actually fled to different uh, parts of the country. At one point, he's even in the land of the Philistines trying to hide from Saul. And then this happens. So we're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 through 17. And it says this, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the King. And Saul looked behind him. David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why did you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So to pause there for a second, what's happened up to this point is David is taking shelter in a cave. Saul comes into the cave. And at this point, David has every chance to kill Saul and take the throne. Uh, Saul doesn't realize that David's there. David's watching this the whole time. And instead of killing Saul, he chooses to exercise restraint. And when he says, why did you listen to people who said that I seek your harm? Saul is Saul thinks that David wants to kill him. He thinks that they're in a war right now. He thinks that they're both fighting over the crown. And at the end of it, one of them will be alive. One of them will be dead. And the one who's alive is going to be king. Um, that's Saul's perspective. But David's perspective really is that he is waiting for, he's waiting on God's timing. And I love the fact that he says, uh, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, lowercase L, for he is the Lord's cap, uh, capitalized L, anointed. Uh, he continues, he says, see my father, the corner of your robe in my hand for the fact that I cut it for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. You may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. 
May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had flinched, has fi- had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, it is, is it your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. I think this is just a great passage to see the contrast between Saul and David. And, and, and really, the whole book of 1 Samuel, what we see is these two figures contrasted against each other. Both of them are chosen to be king by God, which is interesting. Um, but Saul is really obviously the people's choice. Um, he is the person who is, it, the Bible talks about how he's tall, he's handsome, uh, he's probably very strong. And and so the, he looks at, he, he for lack of a better word, like you look at him and you think, wow, there's the king. Um, and David, by all accounts, is unassuming. Like Samuel even looked past him. His father looked past him when uh, when Samuel asked him to bring out his sons and the Lord said that one of them would be anointed king. And yet the most clear point of contrast is that when they are when they are confronted with God's plan, Saul chooses to ignore it. Saul chooses actually really to work actively against it. And David chooses to submit to it. Saul, ultimately his downfall is his downfall is failing to submit to the will of God time and time again. And David ultimately is uplifted, even though he makes mistakes and even though he sins, because uh, like the Bible says, he's a man after God's own heart. And ultimately he pursues relationship with the Lord. Yeah, and I think that this 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 contrast between David and Saul is such uh, an incredible one for us today as we just look back on the stories. Uh, and even as we look at the book of Psalms where I think David is, is, is uh, credited with the, uh, writing a, a vast majority of these Psalms that we see. And one of the ones that I wanted to highlight today was out of Psalm 34. It's a very familiar passage for some of us. Uh, as it says this opening verse that says, taste and see the Lord is good. I remember as a kid growing up and just hearing this verse all the time. And it was confusing to me because I'm like, what do you mean taste and see? How do you taste and see that God is good? Yeah, uh, it's kind of a weird, it's, a I mean, weird way like, of saying it. Where can I take a bite? Like it's uh, So it's kind of funny and ironic. But uh, the interesting thing is just I think context matters as well. And and even prior to the, the interaction that David had with Saul in 1 Samuel 21, we see this incredible uh, contrast where David is told by Jonathan, who's Saul's son, that uh, Saul is out to get him. This is the the initial running point for David, where Jonathan is uh, covering and supporting and loving David. And so David hears this report from Jonathan and runs away and tries to seek um, a little bit of refuge and and and, and protection. And he runs to this uh, the city of Gath, where there's this king who he interacts with and. Um, in order for David to find safety from this king in 1 Samuel 21, he appears to be like a madman. He appears crazy. He acts like he is insane. And just by the wit and the the, the wise uh, ability that he shows, he is able to find the safety where the king is like, why are you bringing me a madman? Why, don't I have enough of these? And, and so David gets out by the wit of his uh, ability. And then you see him go to this cave of Adullam. In First Samuel, and then he pens these words. This is where the Psalm 34, the context comes from. David is hiding in a cave after this uh, fleeing from King Saul. And these three verses, I think, are so key because 
the beauty of the Psalms is that you see David's confession, you see David's honesty, his heart. This is this is in essence the uh, diary moments between him and Jesus. Uh, and it says this in verses eight through ten. I want to read them and then highlight a few things for us because I think they're so good. But it says, uh, "Taste and see the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you who's got His godly people. For those who fear Him will have all they need. Even strong strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing." Remember, David's hiding in a cave, fearing for his life because Saul is pursuing him. And he pens these words to taste and see the Lord is good. He's he's talking about the experience, like ex, like lean into the experience of who God is, because you'll find refuge not just in Him, but you'll the experience of God's goodness and His faithfulness and provision are all are, will provide that safety and that refuge. And then he continues says, "Fear the Lord," and as you fear the Lord, as we come out of this experience with God's goodness, you actually find that everything we need is in God. He is the source of it. And you hear this all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've said it in a message, but it was such a good reminder and so powerful in the midst of this cave after he's appeared like a madman using his wit to uh, be be saved and find refuge and safety from King Saul who's pursuing him. Uh, and he, he just pens these words, fear the Lord. I have everything I need in, in, in the Lord. And then he says this, those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. And I think sometimes it's it's easy to think about the circumstances and situations, but as we think about David penning these words in Psalm 34, hiding in this cave, he literally pauses and remembers that because of who the Lord is, there is no good thing that he's lacking. And and, and again, it just shows you and I in, in the life of Saul and in the contrast of Saul and David, how powerful it is to have our fo- our hope and confidence in the right person. And so that's that's an incredible contrast as well. Yeah, and oftentimes I think um, we can look at Saul and kind of just be confused by who he is, but oftentimes we do that, where we can we can just be prideful and arrogant about who we are and we can think that we're owed things. And it's, it's such an interesting kind of tragic story of Saul, and not that we have to keep coming back to him with every point that we make uh, today, but he starts off so good. Like yeah. I, I remember like reading about how like one of the first things that happens is there's a, there's a city that's being besieged and it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he literally goes to the tribes and he says like, no, we're going right now. We're going to defend. Like it starts off like with just yeah. this incredible moment. Uh, and then it's just the fact that he continually just doesn't pay attention to the, the commands of God. He doesn't pursue relationship with God as much as he really just pursues being king. And that's ultimately his downfall. But just a just a tragic story. Uh, but, you know, let's get off of that bummer for a little bit. Uh, yeah. We're going to move to the book of Chronicles. We're going to introduce it here a little bit. Um, as we're reading through the Bible, what you're going to notice is that a lot of the things that are in the books of Samuel and the books of Kings are also in the books of Chronicles. Um, and like we said last week, but just a, remi- just a reminder, the fact that we have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles is more about scroll length. These are supposed to be read as one continuous book, but because um, back then they just couldn't put all of that information onto one scroll, they separated it into two. So for us today, uh, when we're introducing these different books, just keep in mind that they're they really are meant to be read together, uh, conjoined like that. So the Book of Kings, when we get there, is going to be similar to Samuel in that it really seems like it's being written as these events are happening. And so what I would imagine is going on is there's a record of um, of what's going on in Israel and that as different kings, as their reigns come to an end, the reign of that king is recorded into the book of Kings. 
The book of Chronicles is a little bit different because as you're reading through it, you'll notice that a lot of the stuff really is kind of the same as it is in the other books, but it always has um, these tinges of hindsight hidden within the book where the author maybe writes a little bit of an aside, kind of giving context to when it was written. Um, and that's because as best we can tell, the books of Chronicles were written um, during the period where the Israelites were exiled and basically had just come back to Jerusalem. And so we haven't read through these books yet, but we're going to get to the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, what's happening at this point is that they're exiled uh, into first Babylon and then into Persia. They ask for the ability to come back, to resettle Jerusalem, to take their people back there. Uh, the king graciously lets them go. Nehemiah's story is really about uh, building walls and protecting and, and leading the people of Israel. Um, and Ezra is really about, he is the the high priest at this point and, and not, it's, it's less of um if Nehemiah is about the physical restoration of the of the nation of Israel, Ezra is about the spiritual restoration of the people yeah. of Israel. And so Chronicles is written anonymously. We don't know who exactly wrote it, but tradition tells us that Ezra and Nehemiah were both contributors to the book, which I think is actually really special. And uh, uh, and I don't think there's much evidence against that. And so I think that's actually probably a really plausible explanation of how we get this book. Um, it does make sense during this period of renewal to write down a history of the people of Israel, not just as a way of keeping record, but also as a way of um, warning the people of, hey, we fully rejected God. We had evil kings who worshiped idols, and this is what happened to us. Let's make sure that we don't make these mistakes again. Uh, so that's kind of what the book of Chronicles is about. As we read it, there's going to be a lot of sections where it's genealogies. It's going to be a little bit of, of heavier reading in points, and there's points that are also narrative. Uh, but I would encourage you, read it through the lens. If if, if you will, uh, with me for a second, imagine that you're in the position where your father and your grandfather, they've all been um, exiled from Israel. You know that your homeland is somewhere else, and then you travel back there to reclaim it. And all of a sudden, you begin to read this history of the Jewish people. The, the, the context that you would be reading with it that you'd be reading the books with in that section would be so different than the context that we read today. And I think so often we make the mistake of when we read the Bible, we don't put ourselves into the situations of the characters that we're reading at. So yeah, try and read this as much as possible. Obviously, it's not uh, going to be perfect, but try and read this through the lens of someone who uh, didn't have a home for a long time. All of a sudden, you're coming back and there's this great spiritual and physical renewal of the nation. And then this is recorded to kind of warn future generations against the mistakes that we saw um, in the book of Judges that we just read through, and then also the mistakes that we're going to see as we're reading through Samuel and as we're reading through the books of Chronicles. Yeah, and I think the the beauty of Chronicles is you got to remember too is it, it will be a little repetitive because it is a historical reflection in some respects. And so uh, when you go into reading the book of, of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, just remember it might be a little bit repetitive, but it can add different dimensions to the context and the history because it is written so far removed from the actual events of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. So uh, it's an incredible history, and I love it, and I, and I look forward to uh, you reading more about it too. Uh, but we're going to move on from uh, Chronicles and talking about Chronicles, and we're going to jump into Matthew uh, as that's part of the plan today and this week. And uh, I think it, there's a high passage in Matthew 12 that I want to take a few moments and highlight for us uh, because the interesting interesting thing about Jesus is how intentional and I would even say passionate he was about relationship 
and the reality of relationship versus the tension I think we often even feel today in doing and doing and doing what we're supposed to and losing the connection and the responsiveness of why we do it. It's the relationship that Jesus is so passionate about to the point where he, it almost seems like he doubles down against this pharisaical law that creeps up and that we see throughout the gospels, especially in Matthew. And to the point where Jesus even takes time to defend his disciples. Uh, he heals on the Sabbath, which is a no-no in the pharisaical perspective. And we we see it because it's important based upon the context is Matthew is writing to Jewish believers who was still dealing with that tension between I've got to follow all of the pharisaical law that if, if, if we're being honest, would trump some of what God's law. In essence, the pharisaical law was traditions that were put in place to help, quote unquote, God's people live according to God's laws. Yeah, one of the helpful ways I've heard it described is it's taking at the center of the pharisaical law is God's law, and then they'd add things around it to kind of just make sure that, hey, even if you cross these thresholds, you're not going to get down to the center. And so, you know, for instance, um, the Sabbath is the easy one to yeah. pick on. But, you know, yeah. in the in the Old Testament or in the, in the law, uh, it says, you know, on this day, you're not going to work. This is a day set aside to worship God. Um, and really to take take a rest. And so that's what God says. And then the Pharisees make it out. I mean, there's a, there's some ridiculous laws. I can't remember them all off of my head, but I think there's one about um, like you can't lift objects above a certain weight because that would be considered work. You can't walk a certain distance because that would be considered work. Just things like that, that um, obviously are not necessarily in the text of the Bible and just going a little bit over, overboard as far as far um, as far as legalism goes. Yeah, and we, I mean, we do that all the time, even today. It's like it's it's these certain religious commands or these certain religious expectations we put on, because the heart is good, the intention is really good, because we don't want to misstep or we don't want to fall out of alignment of what God has for us right. or wants from us. So the intention, and and I, and I, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure that the Pharisees' intention was bad, but the problem was that became the priority, and you have to now do it because I want you to do it. And this is the way it's expected to be done in order to accomplish what God has and to live according to that standard. Yeah, it stopped being about um, the heart behind it, I suppose. Like it says, I forgot what psalm it is, but it's um, the sacrifice that God desires is a broken and a contrite heart. Yes. Like the animals are great, but they, the animal is a symbol of of what's going on on a deeper level. And I think a lot of times when, when we add law and we uh, really live by that standard, we lose the fact that God isn't after necessarily physically um, obeying every single command. He's after what's going on in our heart, uh, and it runs deeper than that. Yeah, and I think we see that throughout the the New Testament. We see Jesus so so sincere and so intentional in trying to help people understand this. Uh, and we see this in Ro- in Matthew. I almost said Romans. Jesus, Jesus. Anyways, both good books, both great books. And uh, but Matthew chapter twelve verses one through fourteen. I want to read them. Uh, because I think it's such a great picture of Jesus in in his heart for this. Uh, so it says this in verse 1. It says, About that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, this is a day you're not supposed to do any work. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. Now, if you and I are hungry, even if it's on the quote-unquote Sabbath, we're going to make something to eat. Like, I'm hungry. I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm going to make one, even when I should be quote-unquote resting according to the Sabbath law. But some Pharisees, so they're making food, and then in verse 2 it says, But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on Sabbath. And listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, 
and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, if there is one here who is even greater than the temple, I tell you, oh, sorry, hang on, let me say this. I tell you, there is one who here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And literally what Jesus is saying there is I want your heart. I want you to be responsive to me and the mercy that I offer, not just do duties and sacrifices because that's what is supposed to happen. It's the heart that God is after because out of, I mean, we even hear in scripture, out of the heart is what is the wellspring of life. It's out of the heart that actions occur. And Jesus is concerned with our hearts more than our actions. Uh, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just, in essence, rebuke and lovingly redirect the the, the truth for the, the Pharisees. He continues on. It says, the verse it says, Then Jesus went over to their synagogue, the place where they worship. It says, When he noticed a man with a deformed hand, the Pharisees asked Jesus, Does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? And they were hoping Jesus would say yes so they could bring charges against him. Notice the heart of the Pharisees. They were against Jesus from the get-go, and so they didn't want to have anything. To, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. They were more concerned with how can we trap him and how can we punish him because he's not living according how we want him to. Yeah, they're not interested in a conversation. They're just interested in uh, getting him to slip up, as it were. Yeah, there's a hidden agenda. And so Jesus answers in verse 11. He says, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on a Sabbath, wouldn't you pull, work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called the meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. It's such an incredible reminder and picture of Jesus and the tension he walks through with the Pharisees to understand the heart. The, the, the heart is what transforms. The heart is what we live through. And, and, and if Jesus is working for us, he's trying to help us understand. And the Pharisees understand. It, it, the other thing about this too, if it's me, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to be frustrated with these Pharisees. Sure. But how Jesus responded was one still with grace and mercy. He tried to redirect and tried to steer them to understand the heart of the matter was much bigger than the action behind it. So, yeah, I think that's a great place to wrap up uh, our episode this week. Uh, Just a quick reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can check out all of our other podcasts and resources at our website, which is grove.church. And do us a favor, leave us a review on whatever platform or device you're listening on. It helps get the word out there. Um, it helps get the podcast out to the mo- pe- more people and really grow the community of all of us reading the Bible together. We do read re- re- your reviews. We love and appreciate uh, all of our listeners. And with that being said, we'll see you all next week.